Look, there would be no life on this planet if there weren't seeds that were sprouted. Seeds are, are clearly a treasure. They're extremely powerful. But if you take a single sunflower seed, if you soak it, it will sprout and you could sprout it and it can grow to three to four inches. And then if you were to transplant that and not eat that, put it into a garden or into soil, that single seed could grow to six or seven feet tall and be strong enough to stay straight, powerful enough and intelligent enough to turn and then to replicate itself. That one sunflower seed can replicate to three to 500 sunflower seeds that could all then be planted, that within years, one sunflower seed could replicate itself a million times over. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we have the brilliant and fantastic Doug Evans. He was the co-founder of Organic Avenue, who back in 2002 were the only cold-pressed organic bottle juice company in the United States. From playing as an artist, jumping out of planes for the US Army, and teaching himself computer programming, Doug went on to learn raw juice manufacturing and become the founder of Juicero, a San Francisco-based company which launched a fruit and vegetable juice squeezing machine. Growing up on the streets of New York, Doug turned his passion for street art into a commercially viable business and started one of the very first digital printing companies in the late 80s. He developed an obsession with technology and taught himself the postscript programming language and began working with Paul Rand and Adobe Systems. As a raw vegan for many years, Doug is now a sprouting expert and is the author of the fantastic book, The Sprouting Book, which promotes the power of plants and the power of sprouts as an ultra food for health, weight loss and optimum nutrition. I got a copy of this book and I've been growing sprouts ever since I had this chat with Doug and I'm absolutely loving it. It seems like a really geeky thing to do but once you start growing sprouts you'll really wonder why you didn't start doing it before. It's so much fun. This episode was great. Doug went into a lot of detail about his life and everything that he's been through, his highs and his lows and I really really love talking to him. He's a wonderful man and I know you guys are going to love this episode. So let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Doug. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I love uh, PBN. I love your message and I love your site. It's one of the few pieces of content that I consume is the plant-based network. So thank you for having me. I build the future. I build because humans need more servings of fruits and vegetables. My mom died of cancer. My father died of heart disease. My aunts, uncles, and grandparents all died. And then my brother developed diabetes, heart disease, and had the first of two strokes. And I was scared for my own mortality. Before we talk about all the wonderful things that you're doing with your life now, can we go back in time and tell us your plant-based journey? How did you discover the lifestyle, eating this way, living this way? Where did it all begin for you? I was in New York City. I was involved in computer graphics and graphic design, and my aunt got diabetes, and they cut off both of her feet below the ankles. And then my uncle got heart disease, and then he died. Then my other uncle got um, heart disease, and he died. My other aunt had ulcers and probably had irritable bowel and other things and colitis that I wasn't really aware of but I knew there was something going on in the gut. And then my mom died of cancer, and then my father died of heart disease, and then my brother had the first of three strokes and a subsequent heart attack. So it was, it was really crazy times because every other part of my life 
was just becoming stable. I had a company, I had an apartment, I was doing really well. I, it was the first time that I had this trifecta, you know, of having money, having time, have a company, everything was going well. And then I felt like I was going to die. I was about 36 pounds heavier. An angel showed up into my life at about two o'clock in the morning in a nightclub in New York City. I met a, a very, very wonderful woman. We got into a really deep conversation. Everyone else is drinking and partying. This is like 1999, like partying like it's 1999, like the Prince song. This was 1999. And we're like having a deep conversation about diet, lifestyle, and nutrition, which I had not made the connection. Like I knew you should work out, but my father worked out probably two or three times every day. He would spin, he would bike, you know, he would run. And uh, he still died, right, at what we thought was a relatively early death. So I was not buying the lifestyle part. But then, you know, when she talked about the connection of diet to it, I was open. And then the following day, we hung out. And then we started spending a lot of time together. And she was vegetarian, recently vegan. So there was no question, like, if I was hanging out with this woman, I was going to accommodate, if not abide by letting her order, right? I mean, it was kind of classic romance of chivalry. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Yes, yes, yes. In a two-week period, I went from eating everything, street food, junk food, processed food, meat at at least once a day to vegetarian, vegan, and then raw vegan. And I was raw vegan for... 17 of the last 21 years. I've been 100% plant-based the entire time, but I was raw vegan for 17 years. That's amazing. What a story. Wow. Wonderful. I mean, raw veganism is quite a controversial topic and we'll definitely like to talk. I'd love to talk to you more about that because I feel like there's a lot of a misunderstanding of what raw veganism is and perhaps even the implementation of that as a lifestyle. Where are people going wrong? Uh, but let's come back to that. So Let's stay in your past. So before you got involved in this sort of lifestyle, what were you doing? Because we spoke and we did a live together um, a couple of days back and you told me about your artist background and you've done all kinds of wonderful things. So when you, when you left college or school, what, what was the sort of, what was your main career? Well, it's, it's interesting. I never really went to college. I was a New York City street kid and I was a juvenile delinquent. And so I just ran around causing trouble. My main crime was more of graffiti and things associated with graffiti, stealing spray paint, you know, damaging private and public property. There was this quest for association. And where I grew up, the kids were kind of compartmentalized into hardcore gang members, drug dealers, like non-associative criminals, and then the students. And for whatever reason, I don't know what it was, but I could not get myself to pay attention in class or do homework. And I was always getting into trouble and seemed like with my peers, I, I was fine. I was, I, I found community and I found acceptance, you know, with the graffiti writers until one day, uh, one or two of them turned on me. You know, I think I still have trust issues as a result 
you know, of that. So trust issues about madness in the household, which caused me to not want to be in the household, and then trust issues around, you know, who I associated with. So now I'm very protective of who I let into my inner circle, because these people who I thought I knew and trusted really turned on me out of scarcity and out of um, fear, but still um, violated uh, close trust. And when I could no longer trust my inner tribe as being safe and realized that at a higher level, this was not a vocation, you know, I could take with me that if I didn't make radical changes at age 17, my destiny was going to be dark. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a grown up criminal. I didn't mind being a juvenile delinquent and I didn't want to die. And so I joined the U.S. Army as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne, just as a way of breaking the pattern. Like I wanted to get out. I couldn't see a path out. I didn't have the self-discipline to do it on my own. My parents, you know, didn't have the structure to do it. So I thought if I joined the army, I would learn discipline. I may pick up some skills and um, a vocation. I could save my money and then maybe I could go into the army college fund when I got out of the army. So that was like my thought process and of joining the army. And boy, was I naive. I mean, the army was, and the 82nd Airborne was crazy beyond belief. I have so much respect for the soldiers, you know, who are in the, the military today. I don't care what service because they have to put up with so much. I mean, so much dominant control and so much service where the, the purpose of the military is to break down your ego so that you will follow their orders regardless of where they, they were. Um, that was really hard for me because I didn't really like to listen to anybody. So the more I resisted, the more they persisted. And uh, as a result, you know, I eventually surrendered to the higher power of the, the commanding officer and just sucked it up and did whatever they said. And I did fairly well in the military. I got out with an honorable discharge and an Army Achievement Medal and a, a new sense of belief that I could take on challenges. That if I, if I slowed down, if I observed, you know, they weren't teaching mindfulness directly, but I learned the mindfulness because, you know, you give a, a, a kid, and I was a kid at 17, you know, a, a weapon whether it's a sniper rifle or any sort of weapon and you're shooting at targets far away, you have to control your breath, right? You just can't, you just can't start pulling the trigger like you see in, in the movies. You have to control your breath. And then at the end of the day, you, after shooting uh, hundreds of bullets, and by the way, I would never do that today. But then after shooting hundreds of bullets, you have to clean the weapon where there is not a microscopic trace of gunpowder on that weapon, which means being able to take it apart, put it together with your eyes closed, do it in one or two minutes, and then literally clean it as if you've never seen a frying pan as dirty 
as a, a weapon that has gunpowder blasted through it and you know hundreds if not thousands of times with automatic weapons and you'd have to put it back as if it were brand new and very regimented very regimented and then you'd have to shine your boots and iron your pants and shave and the slightest infraction was a violation of the uniform code of military justice which could result in disciplinary action so I was like, oh, okay, whatever, whatever you say, I'm in, I'm in because I just was sick and tired of doing one extra push-up that I didn't need to do. <laughs> With that level of discipline, do you feel that obviously, as a, as you said, as a juvenile delinquent, you perhaps lacked that discipline, you lacked that structure in your life? Do you feel like the world as it currently is today, you know, young people are missing that discipline, they're missing those boundaries because we kind of live in a world where we just everything is instant. Instant movies, you know, instant music on Spotify, instant relationships on Tinder. Tinder. Yeah, you know, instant products and services on Amazon, instant everything. And there is a kind of like a an entitlement really that it's been going on I guess for decades where People live in this sort of like world of plenty, not necessarily uh, of like money and food, but as of living and exist in a world where if you want something, you sort of just take it. Um, but then the reality of the situation and our world is that it isn't like that at all, that we do need to have boundaries and we do need to have a certain level of um, mental fortitude to be able to survive. Because if, you know, if all children and all young people were just allowed to sort of run amok and not have any boundaries at all, I think we would see a total meltdown of society. <laughs> but on the other side, you know, people do need freedom and people do need to be uh, allowed to be individual and have you know an ego is necessarily a bad thing it can protect you from you know people who abuse your trust as you said earlier how do we strike a balance between all of this because obviously at the same time as if we're parents or if we work in a corporate structure or we work in you know the military you know how do we create a balance between creating fine upstanding mentally resilient people or people who are completely crushed who are more prone to suicide than anyone else on earth you know it's a it's a really difficult thing I mean, you're, you're asking someone who feels very unqualified to answer that, that question, but I can share a anecdote from my experience. I'm in the process of building my little um, oasis near Joshua Tree, California at Wonder Valley. I hired almost exclusively ex-felons to work on the construction project. Some older, right in their 50s, and some 19 years old. These people wanted to work. Some had more skills than others. And managing them, you know, the most skilled guy was a drug addict, alcoholic, compulsive gambler. I had to let him go because he was like up on the roof using um, power tools while drunk so I had to send send him home, and and deal with uh, deal with that, and then the rest of the guys as I plowed through, and in this community they had never seen a ex military vegan that had a level of abundance and a vision. Those combinations they had never seen that. Everything was very kind of lackadaisical or tyrannical, not focused. So. I brought a new level of focus. And then I had a friend, ex-military guy, who I really liked. He got married and he adopted this 
19-year-old boy of the woman who he married. And he asked me a favor. Would you hire this guy? He's plant-based. He's into the lifestyle. He really wants to work. He was somewhat lost. I was excited to hire someone who's on mission. So I had a conversation with him on the phone and then he just started to work. And he lasted about eight days and he was bitching and moaning and complaining to the other guys that Doug is a tyrannical dick and, and, <laughs> and I don't know what I'm doing and that how dare I boss him around and tell him what to do. And, you know, he expects me to clean up after this and it's like, what do you think? You're the youngest juvenile on the totem pole and we have a lot of work to do and it's hard work. He like left with, you know, he quit with no notice and wrote me, I could probably find his like nasty email, you know, as if, as if he were, you know, posting it on Snapchat as like a dig, like, entirely like ego-based things. And I literally did a short fast track to hire him because of what he ate as a diet right? <laughs> and, and, and being a friend, you know, and being the, the, the child of a friend. It's very confusing. If I were to think about it, I think it would mean spending massive amounts of time with the children and being 100% present with them and set an example of not having being glued to the phone, not answering the phone when you're talking to the kids, allocating quality time for engagement, doing tasks and activities with the kids in nature, like go out in nature, think about the role so that there would be engagement and time that would be away from the screen, that would be away from the bad influence, that would also be very engaging. Because I think that today, I may have been diagnosed with ADHD, they may have given me Ritalin or whatever. And because I was all over the place, like I was all over the place, and I had a lot of energy, I was you know, if one set of graffiti writers didn't want to go out and cause ruckus today, I'd go find another group or another group. And I just want to get out and I want to do things. And I, I can see it almost like with dogs. My brother um, has a couple of dogs and sometimes I'll take care of them. And if I take them off the leash and I take them on runs and I exhaust them, they see another dog they don't even want to acknowledge that there's another dog there, <laughs> right? They just want to get home and, and take a nap, right? If you keep them, you know, on your bed all day long and the only activity they have is they get off the bed and they go, you know, they go outside, they pee and they go back to the bed and then they see another dog. They're like, you know, barking and, and, and pulling because they want engagement. So, you have to do things to, you know, engage and wear them out and, and see if you could do productive things. I mean, that's, that's about the extent on my hallucinatory uh, child um, rearing things. My light bulb moment was when I realized that people who had a home juicer 
used them once or twice a month. But when people had an espresso machine, they used it once or twice a day. And I said, if I could take that level of convenience, but do it with fresh organic produce, I could change the world. Juicero's mission is to help people consume more fresh fruits and vegetables so they can live their healthiest lives. You're the inventor of a, a juicing machine called Juicero? Juicero. Yeah, Juicero. Build the future with a purpose greater than yourself that can impact as many people as possible in a positive way. Build the future by committing your whole being to an obsession to manifest the reality of the original dream that you conceive for the business. Juicero. So tell us about that and how did you get involved in that kind of product? Well, I, I had, when I shifted to the plant-based journey, I, with, with this woman, Denise Mari, we started a company called Organic Avenue. And we started that in order so that we could have community with like minds. So we opened up our home and people would come by for potluck dinners. We would have gourmet raw chefs who came to town and we would host dinner parties. And we started to aggregate and sell products that were unique to the lifestyle you know, early spirulina and early raw cacao and other ancillary products around the lifestyle. And one of the things that we started to do was cold press juicing. So this was back in 2002. We launched organic cold press green juicing using a Norwalk juicer, selling it in a glass bottle for $10 with a $2 bottle deposit because we would retrieve the empty bottle, wash it, refill, wash it, sterilize it, refill it, and then put a new cap on and sell it again. Did that for 10 years. So in the course of growing Organic Avenue, we went from this single small Norwalk juicer that did maybe 12 quarts an hour. And I realize a good portion of your your audience is in the UK, so I'll, I'll do my best to um, botch up. And US, that's pretty equal. <laughs> oh, pretty equal. Okay. So yeah. 12 quarts a day, and if we look at quarts to liters, there are, we'll just call them this, the same. So, so 12 liters per hour, and then we ended up having five of those machines. And then we went to larger machines that did 15 gallons per hour. And then we, we had five of those. And then we went to five machines that did 50 gallons per hour. And we built a 20,000 square foot facility in order to produce these um, large amounts of juice. And then th this grand finale was this 21 level juicer. So it was like 21 juice presses combined into one that did 500 gallons per hour. I had a background of graffiti writing. I didn't in graphic design. So I learned a lot about how do you source produce? How do you do food safety? How do you do bottling and filling and scaling and labeling and packaging and compliance all around fresh juice? Because I 
didn't want pasteurized juice, right? I wanted fresh juice. Any juice that was in a bottle previously was sold that was pasteurized either using, you know, heat or, or pressure. Just as a side, obviously, because I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between pasteurized juice and cold-pressed juice. Uh, can you just briefly explain what the difference is and why one is potentially better over the other? Cold-pressed juice is a form of a fresh juicer where it's a two-stage process where you take the produce, you after washing it, you dice it, slice it, chop it, shred it. So you're creating a slurry, right? Just like a mush that has still has the fiber in, but it's all the cell walls are opened up, but they're the juice, the water molecules are still suspended into the fiber. So it's a mush. So it's 100% of the vegetable and fruit, but it's pre-cut and pre-mushed. And then you put it into some sort of sieve or cheesecloth or screen, and then you press it together or squeeze it to extract the juice and separate the juice from the fiber. And then you, in that mode, you'd simply bottle it and sell it. So by by using this two-step cold process, and they use it for oils, cold-pressed oils, this cold-pressed process would give you a juice that you could sell that would be fresh for about three days. As if you just squeezed orange juice, you know, with your hand, squeezed an orange, that orange juice is from the orange, nothing added, nothing removed. It's just the orange juice. That's fresh juice. That's raw juice. That's cold pressed juice. Pasteurized juice, if you were to look at any of the big brands, Minute Maid or Simply Orange or Tropicana, that juice is an entire separation of all the ingredients that look like they're orange and sometimes concentrated, sometimes not, then put back together and then put under high levels of heat, sometimes over a thousand degrees to kill all Fahrenheit, right? <laughs> not just not Celsius. Yeah, yeah. A thousand degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what a thousand degrees Celsius would be. Um, at some point, I think they they balance out, and there's not a big difference. But yeah, it would they they use very very high heat in a short period of time to basically reduce the level of pathogens by five million to one. So they're taking this live raw juice and they're they're nuking it and making it shelf stable when you taste that it's like it's either too sweet or too dead and um it's basically boiled fruit juice really isn't it boiled fruit juice exactly you're ultimately uh i'm not a biochemist but we know when you put a, a biological constituent like fruit or vegetable juice through a temperature and it's um, 1,000 Fahrenheit is 537 degrees Celsius. I mean, it sounds like it's hotter than the center of the sun. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, you know, you're not doing anything good to the fruit. Now, when it comes to the, the rationale behind pasteurization or cold press, a lot of people say it's for a longer shelf life and it's obviously to stop um, any kind of like bacterial pathogens. Is it always the case that cold-pressed juice just doesn't have any shelf life? And of course, that's the point, isn't it? That you want people to buy the juice and drink it 
fairly quickly after it's been produced and not sit on a shelf for like five years, which is what a lot of Minute Maid and Coca-Cola's juice products do, right? They're, they sit forever. <laughs> yeah. And just to be accurate, and maybe I'm reverting, so the actual pasteurization you know, of, of milk is at 63 degrees Celsius, 140 degrees, 145 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes. If you want to do a higher temperature, 72 Celsius or 162 degrees Fahrenheit, instead of doing it for 30 minutes, you can do it for 15 seconds. So the higher temperature, um, faster time. So to me, that was just not interesting to me. That product wasn't juice. That might as well be candy. The, the logic behind it was in 1997, there was a real disaster in the juice industry because a company called Adwala was selling raw juice. And somewhere along the line, someone left that juice evidently in a car in the summer and this raw juice got very hot. The microbiological activity got worse and people died. Wow. And, and the company so, is still running, I see. Well, the, the company went from this beautiful you know, man who owned it and ran it to almost nothing. And then Coca-Cola bought it. <laughs> and, and Coca-Cola pasteurized the juice. So Adwala, which was original raw juice, you know, original gangster raw juice, now is just um, a Coca-Cola product of uh, pasteurized juice with high levels of sugar, etc. You know, we made this raw cold pressed green juice. And in the course of being in this raw vegan world, we learned a lot about people healing themselves and treating themselves and rejuvenating themselves using cold-pressed green juice. So it's easy to eat an orange. It is very hard to eat a bunch of raw kale or raw celery. And so the, the green juice was a way of getting more of the micronutrients into your diet. 18 years ago, I believed that greens were good, cold-pressed greens were good, and that the U.S. Dietary Guidelines had recommended 7 to 13 servings of fruits and vegetables every day, and they considered whole juice, fresh juice, to being a legitimate serving. So it was not a, a stretch to think that, you know, some bo governing bodies thought that fresh juice was good and processed juice was other than the best ever for you. So that was the thesis that we had. And we, we, we had sold many, many juices. And then the, the world was changing in the juice world. When we started, I don't know of any other companies that were doing it, 10 years later in 2012, seemed like everybody was doing it. So there were big brands launching cold-pressed juice, and they were using cold pasteurization. So instead of using heat, they were using pressure to achieve the mandatory kill rate, which also extended the shelf life from the three days to six weeks, which you know is clearly good for the profit level because you have less waste, you can have more distribution, 
And we did not want to do that. So we were still at Organic Avenue doing three-day shelf life. Long story short, we ended up taking on a partner and we had a vision of opening up these fresh organic avenues around the country. We brought on a, a partner who was part of a private equity group and they purchased the company. And as soon as they purchased the company, I was relieved of my duties. <laughs> so, Against your will or willingly? Well, I can't call myself naive or gullible. They, I, I took the money and gave them the reins and they had the choice to do whatever they would want to do. And so, you know, willing, they didn't put a gun to my head. They gave me money and, and I, and, and I, you know, I can't call myself naive. You know, one of my friends warned me the first thing that they were going to do would be to fire me. And I was like, well, they would never do that. I, I know this and I know that. And, and you know, like, yeah, I, yeah, I was clearly naive. And, and so I got fired. You know, we've already discussed that I have a lot of energy and, you know, some would say ants in my pants. So I'm like bouncing off the walls. Like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? Cause I like to, I love to work. I mean, I loved going to organic Avenue, going to the plant and taking my glass bottle and getting the freshest juice, no matter what flavor they were making, and drinking it right from you know the glass right after you know it was filled. It was made, yeah. And and I love that, and I miss that, and I miss drinking juice. I was drinking a couple of juices a day, so I'm running around and I'm looking and and thinking, okay, well I got to buy a juicer. It's kind of like after you have a McLaren, it's really hard to go back to a 1999 you know, Hyundai, right? <laughs> nothing wrong with a Hyundai, but- No, but nothing alike. Right. But if you're used to the premium, most advanced technology and all aspects I was accustomed to, we were buying produce directly from farms. We were getting, like if you just buy produce from the supermarket and you go to juice it, it may be a week or two weeks old. You don't know. But if you're buying it from the farm, you know you're getting fresh produce. I also knew a lot about food safety. How do you properly wash the produce and remove pathogens? How do you inspect it for damages, which could also create you know, bad bacteria? So it's kind of once you have this um, advanced knowledge um, and standards, it's hard to go backwards. But I looked Earnestly, I looked on Amazon, I looked at Macy's, I looked at Bed Bath & Beyond, I looked at independent juice sellers, and there were no juicers that met my standards. And then also, there was no personal cold presses. There was no easy way to clean the juicer and source the produce. So this was a real dilemma where if you wanted to do like make fresh organic green juice using a press, it was a multi-thousand dollar investment plus time. I had this idea for Juicero that we would do this at scale and we would be able to do raw juice and we would sell produce, not juice. We would sell produce that was the same 
product that would be in the slurry that every cold press juicery in the, in the country would was using. But instead of putting it into the press, we'd put it into a compostable cheesecloth. And then to avoid cleaning, I thought if we take that slurry, we put it in the cheesecloth, and then we put it in another bag that had a spout on it. If you put that bag with the spout into the machine and you pressed it, you would have no cleaning. So this was a crazy idea. And then as I started to research it, we saw that people who had an espresso machine or a Keurig machine, the U.S. equivalent of an espresso, um, they were using it once or twice a day. In my survey, people who had a normal juicer were using it once or twice a month. I really believed juice was good. I was designing a product that um, I thought people could use um, frequently, but I had no idea how to do mechanical engineering, how to do electrical engineering, how to do this packaging, how to do the food science, how to distribute it at scale because the cold produce. And so there was a lot of unknowns. Long story short, I built a prototype. I hired a team. I raised some capital. I had a demonstration unit. I raised some more capital. And within five years, we went to a journey from concept through raising over $120 million in capital to launch a machine to selling thousands of these machines over a million packs of fresh produce to ultimately um, having some bad press and terrible communications with the, the, the media, which ultimately resulted in a pylon that was like an avalanche that there was no way to get out of. And the investors ultimately decided to sell the assets of the company and go do something else. And everyone just disappeared. I look at that experience and, and feel like it's a shame that we, we had the machine was being used in Whole Foods and it was growing in Whole Foods, double digit growth month over month. We had um, thousands of customers who were achieving my dream of using the machine nine times a week in a household. I mean, it was extraordinary. You know, I look back and I learned a lot of lessons and it, it disappeared. But it was quite an achievement though, because I think that's the thing you, as someone who didn't have any experience in the sector, to be able to raise that kind of money and convince people of your dream, um, you know, this is, is quite an achievement. It's definitely one that you, uh, you know, you'll be able to sort of look back on and, and pull from because there's always, there's always time for more inventions. I absolutely love gadgets and, and gizmos and, you know, there's always more opportunity, isn't there? And I think this is what the exciting thing about business is. And I'm, you know, I've been running my own business for a few years now and made many mistakes and learned many things. And I think people always say the same thing to me. There's no mistakes. There's only lessons that, you know, no matter what you do, at least you, you got off your ass and you created something. A lot of people don't even do that. They, they have loads of dreams and they have their, their ideas, but they never really get past that first stage. So yeah, well, well done for, you know, for going for it. Thank you. And look, I'm very proud. <clears throat> um, I'm getting teary eyed. 
I'm very proud of what we created at Juicero. The fact that I came up with this idea and I was able to raise the money, build the prototype, ship something safely that had 400 parts and that worked as intended design-wise, that won design awards, that functioned, and that no one got hurt. Like my biggest concern, I swear, was that someone would get hurt, right, by consuming fresh produce that got old with some bacteria and someone would get sick. So I built all of these hurdles around food safety, food transparency, so that we could ensure that people were consuming safe, fresh product. And I was overarching in my desire and my um, controls so that it would be very difficult for someone to consume old produce because I knew the Adwala story haunting me in the back of my mind um, that if someone were to have two-week or three-week-old raw produce coming out of our pack in the machine, they could get sick and they could die. And it was a very, very serious issue. So we went to great lengths to prevent that from happening. Great lengths that made me, you know, mocked. And people are like, oh, well, why are you doing a Wi-Fi connected juicer? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And I was like, well, this is a life or death situation. We did the Wi-Fi so that every pack you put in the machine, you could scan the pack, see the QR code. It would go out into the cloud. It would go to our database and it would check to make sure that that pack wasn't expired, that there was no recalls on any of the ingredients. And then it would instantaneously, you know, give clearance, but it required the Wi-Fi connectivity to the cloud. Now in 2013, we didn't have the level of connectivity that we have today, right? Today, it would have been easier. Like today, we wouldn't even have to do Wi-Fi. We could have just put, you know, a 4G or 3G LTE chip in the machine and it, you wouldn't, it would be instant on. So there, there were all these levels of doing it. But the, some of the feedback that I got from Juicero led me to writing the Sprout book. And I think that's what we're talking about today on, on the, the, the Sprout book and my journey and transition from juice to sprout. Yeah, so, yeah juicing to sprout. So, so tell us about that journey because obviously Juicero was, uh, you know, it's a chapter of your life that's now closed and thank you for sharing it. You know, business and, and entrepreneurship is a, it's a, it's not a road for the faint-hearted, that's for sure. You know, it's filled. I've got many friends, especially with the, with the pandemic that we're now experiencing. You know, in 2020, if you're listening to this a podcast in the future, the world is being gripped by a, a you know a coronavirus pandemic, and a lot of businesses are struggling, shutting down, closing down. So, you know, if you do go into business, it's a, it's a brave act, and uh, yeah, great great work. But moving on to what you're doing now, um, we're obviously talking about sprouts, and we're talking about the wonders of microgreens. Because I think again, another like juicing, it's a thing that many people don't know anything about. They don't even realize that they can grow their own food 
um, in quite high quantities from the luxury of their own kitchen. So talk, talk to us about the, the birth of this book, but also a little bit about how you figured out how to grow things and where you learned this knowledge from. Well, I'm a doer, right? I'm not a classroom person, as we've discussed, so I'm a doer. And, and just the closing part of being an entrepreneur is that you really have to learn not to care what other people think of you. So you want to honor people's rights, right? You don't want to, to be a megalomaniac and, and step on people and abuse people. But no matter what you do, people will find fault and attack. And it's very easy to throw stones. Most people will never understand what you were doing or what your intention was. And my intention very clearly with Juicero was to give people more access to more organic vegetables in a fresh way, in a convenient way, because the choices of beverage that people had, beer, wine, soda, energy drinks, coffee, processed juice, what were the options of, of healthy beverage? So if you were to look at the nutrition analysis of a cold-pressed green juice versus a soda, processed juice, energy drink, etc., so much, so much better. And the fact that it was fresh, I felt like that was a really good, important thing to, to do. And it was worth the expensive part. But the transition of that and some of the criticisms, which along the way, I believe sincerely, most of these criticisms would have been mitigated and addressed over time. Cost of the machine went from $699 to $399 and was going to, the next machine was going to be $199. So the expensive cost of the machine was going to go down. The cost of the individual servings were going to go down. They started at $7. They went to $6. We, they went to $5. And they would ultimately be $3. So we were going to get the, the pricing down and the distribution would be easy. So all these things would be addressed with time. But after Juicero, I went to Burning Man. And after Burning Man, I was open to seeing how community and people could create consciousness and creativity in the desert, right? Because Burning Man was in, in, the, in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. It was fascinating. And I was like, well, I, I think I could like the, the desert, but if you're going to live in the desert, you need water. You know, if I'm going to be dreaming about what I need and what I want, it would be great to have hot springs too. I ended up finding some land in the Mojave Desert, east of Joshua Tree, that had water, had hot springs on it, and had unbelievable sunrises and sunsets and 30 miles away from the nearest interstate, so no light pollution. You could see the Milky Way and the stars, and it was virtually unpopulated. Like the town, you know, there's some tourists Many tourists, millions of people go visit the Joshua Tree National Park. Very few people live here. I was able to, you know, get some land, get a house. I had this awakening that not only was I in the desert, 
I was in a food desert. We were over an hour and 15 minutes away from the nearest Whole Foods. I was like, well, I am plant-based, mostly raw. What am I going to do for my food? So I had been sprouting. You know, I think I first sprouted wheatgrass 25 years ago, but I started to sprout other things, you know, during my organic avenue journey. And so I started to sprout mung beans, sunflower sprouts, alfalfa sprouts. And then I was all of a sudden having access to organic food, organic vegetables, without a lot of space, pretty easily. Even though we had sunshine, the sprouts didn't require sunshine and without soil because we don't, we have sand. We don't really have soil here. That was a a revelation to me that sprouts didn't have to be a garnish like on a salad or on a sandwich. They could be a meaningful part of my real meal or a meal in and of itself. That was like a huge, huge download wake-up call for me. So that was the beginning. And then the next stage was I started to research more about sprouts and I started to experiment and try different sprouts and seeing, okay, what other sprouts are there and what can I learn from them? And the more research I did and the more people I spoke to, the more powerful it was. And like literally, you could sprout alfalfa or basil or broccoli or cabbage or clover or fenugreek or hemp and onion and radish and watercress and arugula and chia, like everything. Like, and that was like, oh, all plant life on the planet starts as a seed that gets sprouted and turns into a vegetable or a tree or a fruit tree you know, sprouts are, are edible and, and they're actually not just nutritious. In some cases and in some nutrients, they can have 30 to 50 times the amount of nutrients of their mature vegetable counterpart. That was like, became something like it was surreal. I couldn't believe it. Like I, I kept, you know, I'm reading this, this stuff and I'm reading white papers from the National Institute of Health and I'm reading scientific journals and I'm reading all this literature and I'm still questioning. So that's when, you know, I contacted um, Dr. Joel Furman, who was a doctor who had written books. He was a proponent of the vegan lifestyle, plant-based. He had a practice. So I contacted him and turns out he loved sprouts and he recommended sprouts to his patients. And in his retreat, he fed sprouts to his patients. And I was like, wow, that's great. Check. And then I contacted Dr. Dean Ornish, who uh, has the book, has many books, many practices, um, a doctor to presidents. And, you know, he's the one who had Medicare in the U.S. to now pay for treatment of people and reimburse doctors who are recommending plant-based diet to reverse heart disease and other chronic ailments. And so I interviewed him, profound um, information download um, from him. And then I, I interviewed Dr. Mark Hyman and Dr. Josh Axe and 
Dr. Mercola and Dr. Alan Geldhammer and Dr. Joel Kahn. And the, the thing that all these people had in common, other than they wanted to help people because they're medical doctors and professionals, they want to help people, they all like sprouts. With that, I decided that I need to get this message out there. I'm going to apply my entrepreneurial energy towards you know sharing this information. So I went to New York City. I pitched one publisher, um, a division of Macmillan, St. Martin's Press, and I brought recipes of the editor to taste. I brought individual sprouts and literally the the editor who I love dearly, Elizabeth Beyer, was literally eating the sprouts out of the palm of my hand. Like she was just loving the sprouts and getting excited. And she's like, oh, my kid would even eat these. And we crafted an outline. And then the real hard work began because I thought I knew a lot about sprouts, but turns out I was a beginner. I set up a lab. I started to document my processes and I started to invoke all of my discipline. And I looked at the various sprouting methods, jars, trays, bags, soil, different sprouting mechanisms for different types of sprouts. And I used that research to create the primary research in the book was done, you know, here at Wonder Valley Hot Springs. I did the work. And the the book just came out April 7th and kind of goes into how to sprout, why to sprout, what to sprout, what equipment you need to sprout, and what do you do with the sprouts once you're done. So what are what are the um the actual sort of key things? So if I read the book from cover to cover, what would you expect me to be able to do if I came away? Learn everything that you've learned or is it more just a, a practical guide or do you actually go into the the nutrient information because on our live last this week you spoke about how uh, certain cruciferous vegetables have a higher level uh certain anti-cancer anti-cancer nutrients uh, but when they obviously when they grow and they expand that nutrient is in a finite amount and obviously if you eat large quantities of uh, sprouts, say over broccoli, you're getting that anti-cancer nutrient in a much, much higher quantity. So how much do you go into the sort of nutrient science, you could say, of sprouts? I think there's a lot there. The publisher wanted to call this the Sprout Bible. I felt this was not a Bible. Like this is a, a paperback book that we made the decision, you know, not to put color pictures in it, not to make it a fancy book, you know, to make it accessible on the, on the price side. But what we did cover, you know, was like the shift in nutrition about why sprouts. So we, we really go into why sprouts and there's a lot of examples. There's a lot of information in there about why sprouts and nutrition. Then, you know, we go from individual sprouts that people may never have heard of, like azuki to Chia, which people think of eating chia seeds, they don't think of sprouting chia seeds, maybe they have chia pets, to sunflower and the broccoli. And then we'll highlight different things like the cruciferous family and, and the broccoli. And then there's a lot of things. I mean, we, I hired an independent fact checker, you know, to research 
you know, the book and do citations and footnotes. Yeah, in the bibliography, I'm just looking right now, I think it's almost, um, God, goes on here. The big bibliography is 25 pages of, of citations to go through. So we're pulling information from a lot of different places. And then, you know, I go into like the how to sprout and what equipment you need. And, you know, there's a chapter, there's a section of the book called Junkyard Sprouting because you don't need um, fancy things. Like one of the things that I realized that I was accused of was that Juicera was an elitist product. That was really not my intention at all. Just so happens, you know, when you're producing new technology, it's expensive. But I may have gone a little, you know, a little far with swinging the opposite direction. But I'm saying, well, if juice has high sugar, low fiber, low protein, sprouts have high protein, high fiber, low sugar. If juice had a three-day shelf life, seeds can have a multi-year shelf life if stored correctly. If fresh produce requires refrigeration, seeds do not. So you, you don't need the refrigeration. If, if you needed fancy equipment, you know, in order to juice with, with sprouts, you could literally sprout them in almost anything. Like I've like been cleaning my kitchen and seeing a sprout growing out of a sponge, out of a colander, you know, a, a seed will drop on the floor and get moisture. And all of a sudden I'm like, how do I have grass growing in my kitchen right on the floor? <laughs> because the, yeah, where there's a will, there's a, there's a sprout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, this, the seeds just really want to, to sprout, right? They really want it. They really want to sprout. And let's talk about that for a second, those seeds. Now, a seed is this inconspicuous, often very tiny little object that I think many people take for granted as to what it is. You know, seeds are incredible, ma- magical things. You, let's look at something like an oak tree. You know, the, the the seed of an oak tree is pretty tiny, but yet it can grow into this huge organism. Um, and some trees, I think, like the redwoods, for example, they can live for up to five to 7,000 years does it blow your mind sometimes about how magical seeds are? Yeah, I mean, look, there would be no life on this planet if there weren't seeds that were sprouted. Seeds are are clearly, you know, a treasure and they're extremely powerful. But if you take a single sunflower seed, smaller than a fingernail, and if you soak it, it will sprout and you could sprout it and it can grow to three to four inches literally just by sitting on a unbleached paper towel, right? Like literally it will grow to three or four inches. And then if you were to transplant that and not eat that, put it into a garden or into soil, that single seed could grow to six or seven feet tall. So two meters tall and, and be strong enough to stay straight and powerful enough and intelligent enough to turn with, to face the sun from sunrise to sunset, the sunflower turns during the course of the day. And then to replicate itself where the sunflower, the black in the center of the sunflower are more sunflower seeds, that one sunflower seed can replicate to three to 500 sunflower seeds 
that could all then be planted that within years, one sunflower seed could replicate itself a million times over. It's a very efficient use of water. The nutrients that are within any sprout. So every sprout will have fiber inside of them and they will have varying degrees of vitamin C and vitamin A and iron and chlorophyll and proteins and amino acids and omega-3s. Like all of these things will exist, you know, within seeds and sprouts. That was like the revelation that was incomprehensible to me prior. And now it's just understood that I look at this little seed and I see the beginning of life. It is truly remarkable and magical. I think it's still a mystery to biologists how seeds or eggs or sperm or any kind of life life starting constituent of a of an organism actually knows how to construct the organism from the DNA. Uh, there's lots of theories. I don't know if you're familiar with Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah. Morphic fields. Morphic resonance. His theory, uh, he's obviously been laughed at a lot by scientists. I think a lot of people sort of point and laugh at him, but I find his philosophy and idea of morphic resonance fascinating that the DNA that exists within life is simply a receiver and transmitter of information that you, a bit like a, an antenna, when you take the, the, the deoxyribose nucleic acid and you organize it in a specific way, it receives a signal which then builds the organism. Now, where that signal comes from, it may seem a bit esoteric and a bit woo-woo, but perhaps the universe does store the knowledge of all life and all organisms in a, in a sort of potentiality. But the idea that a tiny little seed can absorb water and nutrients from the space around it and build an organism, whether it's a human or a tree or a sunflower. It is, to me, one of the most magical things. And I think it's something that most human beings never question and never ponder. They stick a seed in the ground, it grows, and never even think about the wondrous and incredible magic of nature and how it brings life. And that it can re replicate itself, like you said, over and over and over again, into infinity. And this is where, for me, the plant-based message and the plant-based lifestyle is so important because we live on a finite planet with finite resources and finite opportunities in the sense of food. But when it comes to plants and seeds, they could feed us forever. But when it comes to animals, you know, we have to cause so much destruction and so much damage to our environment when we grow them and kill them and process them. It it is almost an act of self-annihilation to continue to eat animals. And the longer I'm plant-based and the longer I do this work, the more I realize the urgency of communicating this message to as many people as possible in obviously the most efficient and least threatening way possible. Because as I'm sure you've experienced, when we challenge and question people's cho food choices, they often react with anger, with resentment, with uh, frustration, because we are challenging a core belief. But what I love about the idea of sprouts is that anyone can do it. And even if you are an omnivore, you know, getting more greens into your diet, growing sprouts is just this fun and simple, because everyone loves to see things grow, right? And having these magical little things growing in your kitchen has got to be one of the coolest things ever. <laughs> well, I think that's something that imagine you, if you have kids, imagine the sprouting and microgreen business is the new lemonade stand. 
that these that if you can help your help your three year old, four year old, five year old start an indoor farm in their playpen and let them work with the seeds and let them work with nature and let them see the growth. I know like the little boy in me gets so excited like when I start to sprout and I and and I wake up in the morning and the first thing I want to do is go see how my sprouts are doing to see the growth. And then like I'll go through a whole day and then I'll go back into the into the kitchen at the end of the day and see like oh my gosh, look at how this thing grew. And literally you could see a journey from two tablespoons to uh to two liters of sprouts in a week it is it is extraordinary to see that and i know that kids are fascinated i'm going to do like every one of my um conversations with with parents i have is like please send me pictures of your kids stuffing their face with sprouts like the sprout face and it and it's really just fun um, to do it, but the the magic and you know what happens like you know if we just think about lentils, right? And I think lentils are an important part of the plant based diet because they're accessible and nutritious. But if you think about sprouting lentils, they will sprout in as little as two to three days, right? So they're hearty, they're crunchy. The taste is either neutral or fantastic, depending on, you know, what your, what your relationship is with them. And you can make them in, you know, in recipes, and we have 40 recipes in the book, but like a lentil mushroom pate, add to salads, you can add them to smoothies. But when you sprout a lentil, you double the antioxidant level of an unsprouted lentil. So that's one thing. And then lentils contain a nutrient, an anti-nutrient phytic acid. But when they're sprouted, the phytic acid gets more neutralized and more vitamins and minerals can be absorbed. This is probably another mind-blowing aspect of this. The vitamin C increases by 300 or 400% when you sprout the lentil because it's turning into a vegetable. It's turning into a vegetable. If I, I've, I've got a big bag of, uh, and I've never heard of them before, but they're called ooh-la-la lentils. <laughs> um, they're green. They look green, but they're called ooh-la-la lentils. I don't know why they're called that, but if that's their real name. How, where do I get started if I want to sprout them? So what kind of stuff could I use around the kitchen to, to get going? The, the simplest way to sprout lentils is to soak them in a jar or in a glass, some vessel, I prefer glass, with filtered water or spring water, preferably a water that doesn't have chlorine in it because chlorine is designed to kill bacteria and you want the the living bacteria. You soak them for eight hours and then you can use a colander, a strainer, a sieve, or a piece of cheesecloth. And if you're using a mason jar, they make special lids that go on the mason jar that have screens. And so you can easily invert the jar, strain out the water, add more water, strain it again, and then leave it 
semi-inverted at a 45 degree angle or something. And, and the criteria is you want to leave it so that the water can drain out. So an appropriate pitch or, or tilt. So the water can, can strain out, but there's still room for the air to get in. So you can create good airflow inside and also create a little bit of like a greenhouse effect. And then you literally rinse them, strain them twice a day. And after the third day, you can start eating those um, those fantastic lentils. Amazing. And what kind of flavors can we expect from lentils? Because lentils have quite, when you cook them, they're quite a neutral, quite, quite yeah, quite a neutral taste. Uh, but you said there's quite a diverse flavor. Yeah, I think that when when you're eating them sprouted, like most lentils, when you're buying them, are are hard and dry. When you sprout them, you can sink your teeth into them. So they become kind of alive and they have various flavors. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, we created the 40 recipes for the book so that you could actually have more options because people like to cook and people like, you know, community and cooking is a big part of socialization. So having recipes of what to do with it, I like not everyone is just going to eat a, a, a pound of sprouts for a meal. I think very few people will do that. But I think that you could adapt recipes. Predominantly, lentils are one of the sprouts that you could actually soak, sprout, and then even use in a traditional recipe. Because once you've sprouted, you've activated these other vitamins and minerals inside of them. I prefer to eat the sprouts raw, which is why in the recipe section of the book, we created 40 recipes that are all raw and that contain about 50% of the recipes. 50% of the ingredients in each recipe are raw. And then what we did was we leaned on, you know, heavy, you know, a variety of different flavors and spices. So like, you know, one of my favorite recipes is the cardamom rosewater halva. This is using one and a half cups, five ounces of sprouted sesame seeds, and then one cup of dried pitted medjool dates, and then a half cup of almond flour, two tablespoons of virgin coconut oil, two tablespoons of rosewater, half teaspoon of ground cardamom, one eighth of a teaspoon of sea salt, and a third of a cup of finely chopped raw pistachios or shredded coconut or both. Wow, that sounds delicious. Right. And, and you know, you, you just need a food processor to mix it all well together. And you're giving someone like a dessert that is on par, like the dates. And if you if you want even sweeter, use a cup and a half of the dried medjool dates. But it's just a, it's just fascinating that you're getting something fresh, no added sugar, no added processed junk. So this is a, a gourmet dessert. Like literally, my brother was like, hey, can I take that and make that and go sell at the farmer's market? It's that good. 
<laughs> well, speaking of speaking of selling, you know, from your from your lessons with Juicero, would you ever consider kind of creating a system that you know, obviously, everyone can sprout, and as you said, you can do it, you know, with anything, with all sorts of bits and bobs you can find around the kitchen. But in our modern, busy lives, you know, would you ever consider kind of creating a system that made it even easier for people, where they had little like racks and stacks and little, you know, grow lights and you know, an affordable device that you could sort of stack in your kitchen with a shelf of some sort, uh, and then you know, have like you know packs of mixed seeds and stuff that were co-branded would you ever think of doing something like like that again or your days of inventing gizmos and gadgets well and truly over well i would say i don't think i can control myself not to just to be (laughs) really really candid but you know my first thing right now is i'm committed to getting this message out there one thing that ed juicero was that i was not um, a public figure, except by the media who loved to hate me. And I never, you know, communicated with the community directly. So I think with writing this book, my entire book tour got composted as a result of uh, COVID-19. So we were planning on launching and book tours and the morning shows in New York and book signings, all that's gone. So now I'm using social media and I just reached out to you on, on Instagram and I know you get a lot of solicitations and I'm very grateful, you know, that you responded, you know, back to me, which was very kind. And I'm just doing the grunt work of getting this message out. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. And um, I think I'm really excited to see where this goes. I, from a personal level, need to really look at my health uh, as far as what I eat. I, I have a real kind of sweet tooth uh, when it comes to food. I, I tend to always reach for the cookies. <laughs> you know, we li- I live in the sort of West, I live in the Western world where access to junk food is unfortunately so readily available. And when you live very busy and stressful lives where, you know, my job is, is incredibly, um, it requires a lot of sort of time and energy, you know, work very long hours, keeping things going. I often kind of neglect my health and I think growing things like sprouts and having an opportunity to make something quick and healthy for myself mm-hmm. is something I really want to focus on. And and I love growing things and I love seeing things grow. So I will definitely take the knowledge and wisdom that you've, uh, that you're imparting and giving and, and take it forward, but also bring it to our audience as well. I've launched our PBN Grow on Instagram. So if anyone listening wants to check it out on instagram.com forward slash PBN Grow, uh, we're going to be sharing as much as much wisdom as we can, including your work, Doug, about growing sprouts and and how to, you know, grow your own vegetables and and kind of feed yourself in, in all kinds of wonderful ways. Coming to the end now, uh, how can people get the book um, and follow you and follow what you're doing? So I'm at on Instagram at Doug Evans, and the book is available wherever books are sold, predominantly online. The book, you could sign up for newsletter at thesproutbook.com. Follow me on Instagram at Doug Evans, and comment, and we're going to be sharing a lot of information over this lifetime. And I think that I'm so excited about sprouting and its potential and what it can do for the world. And from an environmental perspective, it is probably the least taxing on our resources 
from a water perspective, from an energy perspective, and that you literally can grow sprouts anywhere, in a car, in a van, in a basement, anywhere. So sprouts literally just want to grow and feed you. And I think that getting this message out there and starting to sprout is my life's work. It's very, very painful to have gone through the journey to get here. But the fact that I am here, you know, I'm grateful for. Sometimes your dreams are not your destiny. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah was a dream. Part of it was a great dream. Part of it was a nightmare. Um, But now now I think I'm on on to my destiny. Amazing. Life hands us all kinds of curveballs. It's what we do with them. That's what matters, right? Exactly. Build the future by taking care of yourself, by realizing everything that you put in your mouth is a life or death decision, that you need to eat well, you need to sleep well, you need to exercise, and you need to have your heart overflowing with love so that you can endure the hardship of executing your business. Thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, I always like to ask all my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, (laughs) obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan and plant-based. You don't eat meat, but the pig's your friend. If I could give you one vegan dish, one music album, and one book, what would you take with you? I think the, the vegan dish, I'd probably take a durian. So just, just give me a whole durian. A durian or a watermelon, I would take. Well, they would grow in plenty on the island, so you you got that. Yes, so that so that's good. I think the book "As a Man Thinketh" is a really good book. Or it sounds like I'd have a lot of time, so maybe I would read "A Course in Miracles," all thirty-nine volumes. That could be a better option. <laughs> yeah. And what would be your music album that you would take? Music album. You know, whether it's the, the Beatles' White Album or Mike Posner's New Album, you know, or some early Dylan, it's so interesting. Or Michael Fronti's, I love his work. It's interesting. I didn't give myself the gift of music until I was 50 years old. And by then we had Spotify. So I don't even think of, of albums anymore. I just think of artists and playlists. So I don't own one album. I think it's the Mike Posner song, Be As You Are. A fitting title. Yeah, that's all I can encourage to people is just be as you are. And it's just so great. So. Thank you so much, Mr. Doug Evans, for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been a real pleasure to hear your story. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Robbie. Thank you for your service and your work at PBN. And um, I like to say plant-based network because I love hearing plant-based. And thank you for, for being you and for putting your passion and your skills into getting this out there. So congratulations. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, nutrition, fashion, technology, and everything else in between. <laughs>